that one family, they're going to get help and resources. And it may not be everything that they need, but at least they were heard. They knew that that somebody understood what they were talking about and we were able to help find some resources for them and get them connected to things that will hopefully make it a little bit easier to, to get through each day. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality healthcare through policy action and partnerships. Our primary objective is to prioritize the patient voice and health system delivery reform to achieve person-centered care. We are dedicated to amplifying the powerful stories of individuals and the collective needs of various communities across the country. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and today I get the pleasure of chatting with two women, Greta Goto and Mary Middleton, who crossed paths years ago while pursuing the best care for their children. Listen to how their experiences have woven together to support families who care for children with special needs through their work at Stone Soup Group in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm originally from uh, Dillingham, Alaska, which is a rural regional hub community that's located about 350 miles southwest of Anchorage, which is where I live now. And Anchorage is the largest city in Alaska. In Dillingham, about 2,000 people live there. And you, again, you can only get there by airplane. So that's, that's where I come from, born and raised. Mary, where are you from? When I first moved to Alaska 20 years ago, I moved to Bethel, which is in far um, western Alaska, community of about five to 6,000, also only accessible by air. And I lived there for about a year and then moved into Anchorage, which is where I am now. Since you both moved there, what inspired this move to Anchorage? It's a little bit of a story. Uh, my older daughter has a rare disease and she's 27 now. And when she was still in utero at 36 weeks, we learned that she was breech. And we're told that we'd have to fly into Anchorage, which is about an hour and a half on a larger small plane, because our rural hospital didn't perform breech deliveries. So we were here in town waiting for her to be born. And when she was born, she was very floppy, didn't suck, um, had real poor appetite, weak cry, and she exhibited a lot of other very concerning symptoms, but nobody could really figure out what was going on. She was finally discharged after about a month and a half of being in intensive care here in Anchorage, and we flew back to Dillingham with no diagnosis. And then finally, when she was oh, about four and a half years old, um, a series of chance discussions resulted in her being seen at our traveling pediatric genetic clinic at the time. We don't have that anymore. We happened to be seen um, by a geneticist who was familiar with Prader-Willi syndrome. And she made, the doctor made a, a clinical diagnosis of that at the time. And it was subsequently confirmed with a genetic test. And so, it, you know, that journey was four and a half years long and a lot of lost time that we could have had with different therapies that would have been more beneficial to, to our daughter. So 27 years later, and the barriers that you had to overcome with your daughter are still real barriers that people experience in different rural parts of Alaska today. And not even just rural Alaska anymore, here in Anchorage too. <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's, there's things that, that we need to improve on and um, 
that's how I got to meet Mary actually is, is in, in an effort to try to figure out some ways that we could better support families so they didn't have to go through similar kinds of experiences that we did. And Mary, do you have a, a similar story? So for us, we started in Bethel and my son was a kindergartner at the time and had a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive syndrome and Tourette's. And he, after we moved to Bethel, he was in a really serious accident and had to be medevaced into Anchorage and was admitted to the ICU here for surgery and for care. And we were here in Anchorage for several months. He was also seen by several psychiatrists and other therapists. And and the more time that folks spent with him in the hospital, they really started to question his diagnosis. They really felt like autism was a more um, appropriate diagnosis for him. So we kind of changed gears a little bit with, with how we were doing treatment. And we went back home to Bethel, and then we're trying to get more support set up that were more specific for autism services. In addition to ongoing care for the physical injuries that he had received. And it was really, like, really difficult, extraordinarily difficult. <laughs> I mean, they were recommending occupational therapy and physical therapy three times a week. And we were lucky if he was going to get it three times a month. And, and then special education services at school were also very limited. In the end, <laughs> we finally decided that it was just easier to move into Anchorage where we had more access to care. I really commend you all for making those decisions to get the care that you both deserved and desired for your children. You actually joined together to be able to help other families. Um, So tell me a little bit about that encounter that brought you all together. A program that we had both gone through is called LEND, Leadership, Education, and Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities. It's a really, really good program. I'd highly recommend people looking into it if, if they're interested in this kind of work. Part of my leadership project for the LEND program was to develop uh, an idea around how to better support families in Alaska that have rare diseases or undiagnosed disorders. Through that process, I got to meet Mary and we got to talking and she invited me to a meeting to participate as a, as a parent. And, and I was like, sure, I'll do that. I don't know what I'm doing, but I will help you however I can. And then the relationships just kind of grew from that and got to actually go to work with Mary and, and the team there at Stone Soup Group and work on a number of different special projects. The latest project was a grant program, actually, that, that we received from Global Genes, uh, an capacity building impact grant to help develop for us a rare care informed family navigation training program to help our staff have more confidence around and be better informed with what resources are available to help support families that have rare diseases. Congratulations on the the success of that program. Mary, do you have anything to add? At Stone Soup Group, it's it's really core to us to, um, one, to employ parents who have children with special needs. So a majority of our staff are parents parents to children with special needs or siblings, um, and then a majority of our board members as well. And then we also encourage um, you know, volunteers, like how Greta started out, um, to also work with us and to provide you know, more opportunities for that, um, that sort of stakeholder voice and involvement in and, and all of the work that we do. 
And where did the name Stone Suit come from? So our name is based on the fable of, you know, the stranger who comes to town and only has um, a stone to contribute to making soup, but asks for everyone to come in and, and bring a single ingredient and that together they can create like a nutritious meal and, and feed the community. So just sort of that idea that if you work together and in collaboration, better than working individually and we're stronger together. We were founded by a group of parents who came together to share with one another sort of their tips and tricks on how to get services in Alaska, and in particularly how to travel with your child um, to receive care outside. And it really just grew from there, that, that peer support. So how has COVID affected the ability to get the care that, you know, your community needs? Well, on, on the positive side, we're doing a lot more telehealth. So I think that a lot of families are accessing care and services they actually didn't have access to pre-COVID because telehealth is being used much more consistently and in circumstances where it hadn't been approved prior to COVID especially some of our rural families, they're getting access to ABA services. They're getting better access for follow-up care because the travel is so restricted right now. And Medicaid is approving some of these expenses that hadn't normally been covered. But it is difficult. There are some families who, who do still have to travel and they have to go outside. They need surgeries. They need care that just can't be received here. And so um, it's it's certainly complicated and and risky. Even Alaskans joke about like Anchorage being a suburb of Seattle, um, but it's a three and a half hour flight. It's an all day event. That impacts work disruption, that impacts schooling, that, that impacts a lot of things. And even to and from Anchorage, there aren't a lot of cities in the state that you can fly like in and out of Anchorage in a day, realistically. That That's very true. And, and, one of the results of COVID has been impact on businesses, which has impacted the, the airlines very drastically. And so we're, we're seeing that with flight schedules here in, in state too. People are trying to accommodate, but it, it just, COVID has certainly impacted every aspect of, of life. So we have like regional hub communities. So like Dillingham is one and Bethel is another. And, but if you live outside of a hub, you have to first get to your hub community and then maybe you can get to Anchorage from there. It depends, but um, it's, it's not easy. Is driving between these cities a possibility? No, we really own roads between Anchorage and Fairbanks and then a little bit like down the peninsula, but it's a pretty limited part of the state that where roads connect the cities. So most of our communities are very isolated and the only access is, is really air. Some maybe by boat, depending on where they are, but um, we fly a lot. All of, the, all of our rural communities, with the exception of those that are on the road system between the cities of Anchorage and Fairbanks, um, you, you basically have to fly. So just to put it in, in dollar context, um, a flight from one of the rural, more rural areas in my region, in Bristol Bay, 
uh, would be maybe $200 round trip between the, the village and Dillingham. And then it's another three to $400 round trip. If you're lucky, usually it's around five to get into Dillingham. So you're looking at, you know, 700 to $800 round trip ticket just to get to Anchorage. Then if you have to go to Seattle, it's another five, $600, depending on when you get the ticket. So just right there, that's just per person, just in, in the travel portion. It doesn't include lodging, food, and then all of the other medical expenses that may be included with that. And there are frequent weather delays um, that you have to factor in when you travel in Alaska. So you don't often get where you're going on time. <laughs> and the, the challenge that we continually face with you know, policymakers particularly from the East Coast, is they, they just don't understand this dynamic of what, what life is like here in, in Alaska. And um, that's just part of it. And I know we have friends and relatives in other parts of the United States that um, may live in rural communities as well, and, and they face similar kinds of, of issues of just that transportation. I heard your podcast with um, Beth, and I mean, just, you know, that that story just really hit home. I could re It really resonated with me because... You know, we face similar kinds of circumstances. The, the exact mode of transportation may be a little different. It may be even more expensive, but those issues we share in common. And so I think we need to, when we're advocating with our congressional delegations or others that, you know, that, that really try to help them see and the staffers see that these kinds of, these are very real issues that our families face. And when you try to take away just basic insurance from us, you're impacting us severely and that's not fair. It's not right. And, and it does not need to happen and it shouldn't happen. But even, even the ferry system is a challenge now for some of our friends and relatives in Southeast because of budget cuts to our ferry system. So we have, a, we have some, some challenges that just getting access to, to healthcare most medevac flights are actually based in Anchorage, like the planes themselves, their home is Anchorage. And so if someone is injured in a remote part of the state, like the medevac has to get to them, which can take hours and hours or days even, depending on the circumstance, and then get them back to Anchorage. Like when my son was injured, it took us 15 hours to get to Anchorage from the time of his accident. And... Um, you know, and his pediatrician was excited that we got here so quickly. And when they work, it's a thing of beauty because it, it is truly, yeah. there's a lot that goes into this and the, the people that are providing that care and that, that assistance, they're amazing people. We really appreciate them. So are these barriers also present when people are just trying to get primary um, everyday care as well? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the state has no real specialty care, even in some of the hub communities that, that actually do have hospitals, um, it's difficult to staff. And to employ like an anesthesiologist is particularly difficult in rural Alaska. And without an anesthesiologist, there are a lot of things that can't happen in a hospital. We do have a system of um, community health aid practitioners that are a phenomenal group of, of people that provide, you know, like primary kinds of care and then can, can help access getting further um, care if it's needed. And that system was set up, oh gosh, I think 
seventies, eighties, and it, it's it's truly an amazing program, and that that's operated through the Indian Health Service and our, which um, is part of our Alaska Native Care up here. But there's so there are you know there are solutions to some of these things, and a lot of it comes down to funding and, and making sure that people understand the need for that funding. Um, but there's truly a lot of people that are involved in some amazing care workers, some amazing doctors, nurses, practitioners that that go out of their way to try to ensure that um, that our, our, all of our citizens here in the state are, are cared for. Yeah, and we have a lot of specialists who do itinerant work so that we, we aren't bringing everyone in um, to town for services that we send them out to communities. And so Greta mentioned in the beginning that there was a traveling genetics clinic that her daughter was a part of years ago. And so we still, we don't do the genetics clinic right now, but we still do that type of work with itinerant providers in our healthcare system as well as in our school system. Are there any other solutions or workarounds or things or, or policies that you all uh, would like to see implemented that would be helpful and needed in, in overcoming these barriers? We talked a little bit about it, this idea of uh, rare care informed family navigation training curriculum, I think we saw pretty clearly that that, that works. And one of, one of the things that we did, we were just building on our staff's knowledge already of how to navigate services and how to help families understand what they might need and what questions to ask and how to fill out applications and, you know, kind of get through the bureaucracy of all of this. But we have, you know, national organizations like Global Genes or Every Life Foundation um, for rare diseases, or NORD, or GARD, Genetic Alliance, and Family Voices. I mean, there's a lot of different resources that are available. So how do we make sure that our staff are understanding what those resources are, what might be available through them, and how they might be able to help some of our, our families, particularly with rare diseases? So that that's a solution, just, you know, kind of the training and understanding that these things do exist. Especially... Greta, with your experiences with your daughter, why do you believe genetic medicine is so important in diagnosing and managing these rare diseases? Probably first and foremost is that it, it can clarify a clinical diagnosis. So then you would know for sure if it, if it is something that is known already, and there's like 7,000 different rare diseases and more that are being discovered every day. And then for ongoing uh, care and, and treatment. I mean, now there's, gosh, there's precision medicine, helping understand what kinds of medications may work better with a person's genetic makeup is another area where we can see benefit from this kind of, of work. Just, you know, having genetic counselors available to help families understand what all of this means and what may or may not really be a viable solution, genetic solution for somebody when you do have an earlier diagnosis, then if there is something that is going on, and if, if it's a known thing in particular, like something like Prader-Willi syndrome, the sooner that you can get assistance for that and know what is going on, the sooner and, and the, the better the outcome for the child and the family. And it just, it just it's a stress relief to know what is going on. And, and for most of the parents that I've ever encountered that have a child that has um, that lives with a rare disease, just having that knowledge of what's going on and why something is the way it is, and to know that it's not my fault, <laughs> you know, that, that's a, 
that's a really important thing. And, and it doesn't make it any easier, but at least you know, and you know what you're dealing with. And I know that you also do work with the National Human Genome Research Institute. How has that helped propel the work that you do outside of that with Stone Soup and any other avenues that you work in? But it's been just absolutely eye-opening. Again, I think I, I wouldn't know all the things that I know on the improvements and the new knowledge that's being discovered and then being worked on to bring you know, to translate it into clinic and into into practice that we can use as families. I think that that's where the value of of a group like the the working group is. Everybody on that working group is so knowledgeable and truly engaged and trying to ensure that this knowledge around genetics and how how it can be a benefit to our communities. You know, that's that's what it's all about. What are some experiences or moments that you think back to and you're like, wow, this is why I do what I do every day. I, I can think of one right offhand that just actually happened a, about a couple of weeks ago now after our training was concluded. Um, one of our staff had a call from a family that's supporting somebody with a rare disease and she knew exactly where to go to get information to help the help the family. Did I mean like didn't even miss a beat? And I was like, yay! This is so cool. This is exactly what we wanted to see happen. It was like it made it all the pain of putting that curriculum together, which actually wasn't very painful. It was actually a really really awesome project, probably one of the best ones I've ever worked on, and. Um, yeah, that that was really that was awesome. It just made it all worthwhile that that one family they're going to get help and resources and it may not be everything that they need, but at least they were heard. They knew that that somebody understood what they were talking about and we were able to help find some resources for them and get them connected to things that will hopefully make it a little bit easier to to get through each day. Now, I think for me just more broadly there's been so much power in just connecting with other families who have such similar experiences. You know, I mean, even Greta and I, our kids have a very different diagnosis and have had a very different path in terms of care and treatment. And, but still like so many similar experiences along the way and just feeling like that connection to community <laughs> because so often you feel really isolated with your kid and like no one really understands and you know just doing normal things like going to the grocery store and you know trying to go out to a park are, are difficult for families who have kids with special needs there are programs in every state similar to stone soup group um, so every state has a parent training and information center and every state has a family to family health information center um, they all have different names, but but every state has at least one. Um, and just encourage families to reach out and make those connections and find those supports. And oftentimes there are resources available to you you never knew existed. And just the, the, the connection with other families is profoundly helpful. I would ditto everything Mary just said, because th these organizations are truly phenomenal and really are um, helpful to families that that just need somebody to understand what they're talking about. 
Global Genes, Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, Nord, Guard, those are all phenomenal resources. And, and if somebody's interested in doing um, advocacy work to help raise the, the voice around rare diseases and supporting rare diseases in our country, um, that certainly Global Genes, Every Life, and, and Nord are three organizations that, that people should, should check out. Um, Nord in particular has the Rare Advocacy Network, and most states have have a RAN. It's called RAN um, that's in operation, and, and those are really great areas to kind of exercise your voice in supporting different issues that um, the rare disease community is supporting. Things like newborn screening or telehealth or um, um, precision medicine; those kinds of, of issues always come up. So I would I would offer those up as some resources. Well, thank you both so much for joining me and more importantly for using your own experiences and things that you had to overcome um, to be a blessing to someone else, you know, to be a light and a path to someone else's journey and, and making that, that process for another family just that more easier because it's something that you learned and can pass along. Thank you both uh, for the impact that you're having, um, not just in Alaska, but, but everywhere, you know, from people learning from what Stone Soup is doing and being able to duplicate it in their local area. Thank you for having us, Ashley. Yeah, thank you, Ashley, and thank you, Mary, for letting me work with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.